I want to invite you to listen with me as I read today from God's Word, as it's found in the Gospel according to St. John, the 8th chapter, uh, beginning at the second verse. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question, tells John, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. And only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight and draw us ever closer to your heart. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we prepare to come today to the table of our Lord, I want to reflect with you on where we are as a church family and on some of the most cherished beliefs, not only of our church, but of the worldwide communion of believers across our planet today. As many of you will be aware, this past July, I created a considerable stir in the life of the church family and raised some questions about what are actually our essential beliefs by performing the baptism of a same-sex wedded young woman and the child of another same-sex couple. The response from the congregation at the time was immediate. Some cried out in great objection and concern that this was a failure of biblical faithfulness, and others, from a different point of view, celebrated the act as a, a movement of Christ-like love towards particularly that child. Since that time, so many of you have taken the time and the trouble to write. You've communicated to our board of elders or to me or to our staff your convictions on these particular matters. And, and this has sparked in the hearts of so many of us who are in leadership here a a 
renewed sense of wonder at the quality of the thinking and the feeling of this church's life. I think there could be no pastor on the planet who would not rejoice that there is a congregation he serves that cares so much about the authority of God's word and about the plight of people. And we heard again and again this tremendously deep desire that we be a church that is both biblically faithful and radically loving towards other human beings. And so over the past couple of months, our church leadership has, has entered into a, a deepened season of spiritual journeying. We have studied the scriptures together, we have prayed, we have listened to stories from many points of view, we have talked on and on in an effort to come to unity together about how we believe God wants us to move forward as a leadership group and as a congregation in the face of the increasingly complex pastoral and life situations that today's society are presenting to us. And, and in the course of this journeying, we have sensed just how profoundly we are in a defining moment in our own church's life and in our wider culture's life. And so we really took a great deal of time to go before God together in prayer and to ask him to convict us deeply of what it is he would have us do to be walking in his will and way. And I just want to say thank you to all of you for your patience in waiting this process out. Uh, I know you, some of you would have liked to have an answer very quickly and were wondering why it was taking so much time. We simply wanted to make sure we were doing the right thing. What has emerged from this discernment is a refreshed vision of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and what it means to be a disciple-making church. We sent out by email this past week a document that describes our sense of what that really looks like in practice. You can pick up a printed copy of this document today if you didn't get it by email. It's out at all of the literature stations this very day. You can go online to our church's website and at the end of our address simply type in slash discipleship and the material will be there for you. But in a nutshell, if I could just bring it down to its simplest components, what we've done with this document is to essentially take one step back and two steps forward. We have taken the measure of hitting the reset button, in a sense, and reaffirmed the historical practice of our church when it comes to our approach to baptism that has been our long-standing pattern since the founding of this church's life, uh, prior to that day in July when the controversy erupted, and which we believe is the continuing practice of now two millennia of Christian history and of the vast majority of the worldwide communion of the body of Christ to this very day. But we are also taking two steps forward into some vital new territory which is for us perhaps the most exciting part of this. If God meant for good that which seemed very confusing at a particular moment, it is because of these two steps forward that I believe God is leading us towards. First, we want to challenge ourselves, and I really mean that ourselves first, and then challenge you 
to renew our vision and commitment to what it means to be truly biblical, biblically faithful to the way that God calls us in the scriptures to live. And secondly, we are asking you to join us, the leadership of Christ Church, in helping to shape a culture that is even more radically loving of the people that Jesus gave his life for than perhaps we have ever been before. And today I want to simply unpack for you those movements, if I may. One of the most important things that happened within my heart and within the heart of the other elders as we deliberated over these matters was a deepening awareness of how much God has left to do in us. A profoundly humble awakening to the many areas of our life when we look at the portrait of a disciple as it is charted out in scriptures, the many areas of our life still out of alignment with this vision of Jesus for his followers. It is very easy, of course, to focus on certain visible sins and to do that mainly with other people, but we know because of Christ's explicit command that our first priority has to always be to work on the log in our own eye, the sin in our own selves. And so whether it is gossiping uh, or whether it is uh, failing to care for the temple of the Holy Spirit, our body, or or using our resources in a callous and selfish way in a world where millions of the least of these Christ's brothers and sisters are living in abject poverty, all of us, in some sense, are, are involved in patterns that, that are unrepentant, that are not yet moving fully or maybe even actively at all in the direction that Jesus calls us to do. And so we wanted to first of all just confess that and our awareness of the repenting that we still have to do ourselves. In our discipleship vision document, we have sought to, to paint uh, not only a list of some of the very specific biblical sins that God calls us to turn away from, but also the particular character traits and patterns of living and being in the world that Christ calls us to. And, and, and that picture that we see there goes way beyond uh, sexual practices uh, toward a much more holistic understanding of the beautiful life that Jesus wants us to know and all people to know. For 2,000 years now, the Christian church has understood the sacrament of baptism as being about the choice to actively pursue that kind of life. I know that is not necessarily the primary understanding of baptism that some of us today hold. What we've discovered as we've been in conversation with people is that some people feel that baptism is a sacrament that is necessary for salvation. That, that, that the soul is not safe until one has been uh, baptized. Others have seen it as a ritual celebration of God's uh, unconditional love for human beings, his, his, his determination to affirm everything about human beings uh, in, a, in an unconditional kind of way. And if you hold these particular lenses for uh, looking at baptism, then it is only natural to think that it is the most unloving and inappropriate thing in the world to refuse to baptize people that want to be baptized. 
and especially little children. The Bible teaches, however, that admission to heaven does not in any way depend upon being baptized. Admission to God's good graces in heaven, salvation in its fullest sense, depends solely on someone's relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus himself made it absolutely clear that, that he felt profoundly relationally connected to children. There is not a child of a gay family or of a straight family or without a family that, that Jesus and any church that actually is following Jesus doesn't already love and accept and put its arms around and commit to walking with in every way possible. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and hinder them not, because of such is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, kids are in until they grow up and if they choose to walk out. And we want to celebrate that reality and live it out in all of the ways that we know how. And we'll talk more about that in days to come. The sacrament of baptism, however, must not be confused with what Jesus did when he said, let kids come to me. The sacrament of baptism is not actually primarily about God's love for us. I know that in the baptism of Jesus, that's what it was about. It was the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased in all respects. But, but that baptism is different from the kind of baptism that the rest of us go through in life. Those of us who are genuinely tainted by sin, even though the image of God continues within us. The sacrament of baptism is for the church about our love for God. It is about our desire to have ourselves and the lives of our children conform to the character of Christ. I got a bit cloudy on this, frankly, this past summer. You know, I, I have a heart that just goes out to people, and especially to children. But I see this much more clearly now. When we baptize somebody, we are certainly reiterating God's desire, the, the call of Jesus to have everyone possible gathered into the circle of the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that is actually not the central meaning of baptism. It's not even close to its fundamental purpose. Throughout the scriptures and the life of the early church, baptism was viewed as a sacrament of repentance. It was viewed as a, as a portal in, in, at which point people actively sought to turn from the old self uh, from the way of life that had been before and towards the new kind of life that God was calling them to in Jesus Christ. The continual call of the original church was repent and be baptized. The very process of going underneath the water and coming up out of it again it, it symbolizes this idea. We are dying. We are drowning to the old self. We are putting to death the old self and we are being lifted with Christ into a new kind of life, a resurrected, redeemed kind of life.
And so from the earliest days of the Christian church, those who were being baptized or the believing parents who were bringing children for baptism, they made this pledge at the point of baptism to turn away from what God calls sin and towards the life of holiness that, that he asks them to come to. Do we ever do this perfectly? No, we don't. But this is the fundamental movement that is implied in the act of baptism. And we believe that this capacity to turn and to be renewed is empowered by the Holy Spirit and the help and the support of the body, the church of Jesus Christ. In the early church, uh, people um, usually went through a very long period of preparation before baptism. It was not uncommon in the early church for people to go through instruction for an entire year before they were baptized. Why would they be instructed? So that they knew what they were buying into. So they had time to decide if this was really for them. In modern times, we've become somewhat lax about this. We've taken for granted a biblical foundation in people's lives for what the life of discipleship is all about. Life moves fast sometimes, and we've neglected perhaps the proper education and reflection needed. As we move forward from here, we want to do a much better job as a church of helping people who are exploring baptism or thinking about membership, and these things go together in the Reformed tradition. We want them to really think through what it is that they are actually getting into by making this particular commitment. And our discipleship vision document is our attempt to try and paint a picture of that, a faithful picture of the life that we're striving for together. You know, in recent days, we've been asked many, many times, uh, is, is Christ's church going to deny baptism to somebody simply because of some particular sin in their life? And our answer to that is no. That would be crazy. That would be hypocritical because all of us have particular sins in our life. But the, but the very question that we're being asked, I think, suggests a significant misunderstanding that we have to clear up together. Baptism and membership are not some special privilege or status that the church confers upon or denies to a certain people. That's not what baptism and membership are. Baptism and membership are voluntary acts of commitment to pursuing a certain way of life. I will be honest, I wouldn't pursue baptism or membership myself in a church that had a definition of sin I did not agree with, or a picture of a life towards which I was supposed to be moving, which I saw no possible way of ever moving toward. I'd find a different church. I honestly would. Christ's church is not trying to keep anybody out. We just want people to know and to think about, given our vision of discipleship, given our understanding of what it is that Christ is calling us away from and calling us to, do you really want in? Because if your answer is yes, you really want into that vision. We say, come on in. Welcome on in. One of my very favorite stories of Jesus is the one that we read from John's gospel a short while ago. 
And in that story, as you will recall, Jesus concludes his interaction with a woman who has been caught in adultery by saying, go now and leave your life of sin. Adultery was a commonplace practice in the first century. We know from numerous research sources that there was a sexual license and latitude and variety in the first century Roman culture that rivals our own time, maybe even beyond the standards of our own time. And most people just accepted the idea that they might have um, a marital sex, but they would almost certainly have some form of recreational sex on the side, and that took many different forms. But in the Ten Commandments, God had said to the Jewish people, I don't want you to go there. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's spouse. And even if it seems harmless or it seems accepted by other people, God was saying, in effect, it's just not what I'm asking of you. I'm calling you to be a holy people, a different people, a set-aside kind of people. And so in a biblically faithful way, Jesus challenges this woman to turn away from what had become accepted practice in her life and that of a lot of men out there and toward a new kind of life. What is sometimes missed, however, in the telling of this story or the thinking about it is, is what Jesus did before he said that to her. In the sentence that comes right ahead of it, Christ says, and I quote, neither do I condemn you. I do not condemn you. And the Greek word that is uh, rendered condemn there is the word katakrinine, which has a very specific meaning. Katakrinine is a term which refers to a damning judgment of somebody, a writing off of their life on the basis of some particular act or attribute of that life. Jesus does not do that with anyone in this life. And remember, he says this to her before she's repented. He's approaching her with a, a statement to her that he is not going to write off her life on the basis of this, this serious issue in it. Jesus does not do that to people. He does not do it because of one particular element of where we are on our journey today. Jesus is most interested in what with his help, his grace, his truth, we can become. The Bible calls Jesus, for this reason, a friend of sinners. More than once, this is the title that's applied to him. And these weren't just words. Jesus wasn't just polite to imperfect people. Jesus didn't just hold his nose and tolerate uh, people that were coloring way out the lines, outside the lines of God's moral teaching. In the story that we read from John chapter 8, Jesus actually puts his entire body between a rock-wielding mob and the life of this woman that was so out of alignment with God in some critical ways. He puts himself there, risking his own death in that moment to defend the value of her life and to keep open the possibilities of the future. This is a really important story because, in a sense, it points to the ultimate story 
that is at the heart of the sacrament of Holy Communion, that is at the center of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. For the truth is this. God has placed himself in Jesus Christ between your life and my life and, and the ultimate catechrinine, the ultimate judgment, the condemnation that will come upon human sin. He's laid himself out in that place before we even repented and declared his commitment to us in this very dramatic kind of way. That woman in the story, the woman caught in adultery, that's you and me. That's every single one of us that are still involved in all kinds of patterns in our lives that are not pleasing to God, that are out of alignment with God, things that we don't even see in ourselves yet fully, which is why Jesus had to pray from the cross, I suppose, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And this has implications for faithfulness, I think. There's a term for this kind of self-sacrificing, other-prizing behavior. And our, our staff and our elders have recently coined it as being radically loving. I know some are thinking that we are not being radically loving if we're not going to do everybody's baptisms. But I want you to think about this in light of what the Word of God actually says on the subject. Tell me about one time Jesus baptized someone. He didn't. Jesus never did. Do you think his life was not radically loving? I mean, think about all of the other ways he expressed love. He, he entered into the messy life of people. He walked with people. He, he listened deeply to their stories. He asked them probing questions. Jesus fed people and dined with people and healed people and embraced people and lifted people up. Jesus shared stories with people and taught people. Jesus invited people and laid his hands on people and prayed for people and even stretched out his arms and sacrificed his very life for people. This is what love looks like. It is not confined to a particular ritual act, even something as glorious as a sacrament. Love is so much more robust and so much more every day, and so much more important than what happens in a church building. And this is what our elders and our staff envision Christ Church renewing its commitment to doing for LGBTQ people and straight people, for conservative people and progressive people, for young people and old people, for Bears fans and Packers fans. We want to be the most radically loving community we possibly can be. So whether you or your loved ones decide to commit to our discipleship vision or simply enjoy the 
friendship of Christ church that will be very real and palpable to you. Please know this. You matter to us. You really matter to us. We are glad you're here. We want to know you. We want to understand your story. We want to journey with you. You belong in our circle. If you are a sinner. Many years ago, I knew a drug-abusing, fornicating, God-denying, suicide-contemplating young adult who could not even conceive of the possibility of surrendering his appetites, his attitudes, and his actions to some kind of God. But some very devoted disciples reached out, and they befriended him. Uh, They stuck with him. They asked him questions. They walked with him. They met him with a radical kind of love he had not experienced before. They welcomed uh, him into their circle. They patiently taught him the biblical truths that had been very important in their own lives. And in that circle of belonging and of believing, that young man began to believe himself and to become someone new. Whatever happened to that guy? He is standing right here, feeling from the depths of his being gratitude for the love and the truth and the grace of that church. He is here today proclaiming to you the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and of God's word and of the body of Christ that is at the core of the gospel of Jesus. And so, I just want you to think with me today about how much this, our world, needs the church today. How much it needs this story of of power and transformation today. How much it needs communion today. All across the worldwide communion of the church of Jesus, there are stories like my story that are being told. There are stories of life change that are happening or about to begin. And the church needs, the world needs today to see that it is genuinely possible for human personality to be altered and for human community to change for the good. You know what's happening out there in our world today. You know how disconnected we are from God. You have seen how much of this world is disfigured by sin and distracted by a thousand idols and our world has become increasingly angry and materialistic and power-grabbing and anxious and addicted and hopeless. Divided falsely into black and white and red and blue and gay and straight and me too and use you and us and them, we have lost sight of our brothers and sisters We've been blinded by sin to the very brothers and sisters Jesus saw. And we have come to care more about being right with our tribe than being righteous in the sight of God and have forgotten the wonder and the gift of human life in all of its fragility and its interdependence and its glory. But God has not forgotten. And he sent his son Jesus into this world to call us back to himself and to make through his sacrifice a way 
for us to come home to a holy God. And so Jesus bids us come. Come today to my table. Come commune with me here, and I will help you remember who you are and whose you are and who you can become. I will fill you with the grace and the truth that you need to be transformed. You do not need to be perfect to come to the table of our Lord. You don't have to be even a member of this church. You simply need to be sorry for your sins and to be willing to put your trust for your salvation, not in your own works, but in the saving grace of Jesus Christ poured out upon the cross. And you need simply to be willing to resolve that you're going to seek to live in obedience to him. So come to the table of our Lord and find the grace and the truth that all of us need until that coming day when Jesus returns to sit at the head of the great banquet table when all things will finally and fully become new. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.